Thursday, this Thursday, Karen and I will be standing on a hill overlooking Megiddo. Now that name Megiddo may not jump out at you, but the word in Hebrew for hill is har, Megiddo. Guess what word we get from that? I'll be looking at the final scene, the final chasmoclitic site of Armageddon this Thursday. Then Friday, we'll stand on what they believe is the the hill, the mount, where Jesus actually preached the Sermon on the Mount. Saturday, we'll be out on the Sea of Galilee. That's where he walked on water. I'm going to try it. I don't know. We'll see what happens. You know, uh, I've been trying to tell my wife for years that I'm God. I don't think she's buying it. So this is my chance. This is my chance. Of course, with the Sea of Galilee, if you know the gospel story, so much goes on around the Sea of Galilee. So the first half of the trip, we're in Tiberias, which is right there on the Sea of Galilee. Then the second half of the trip, we'll, we'll, go into, we'll stay in Jerusalem. I think next Monday, it's, it's the Upper Room. It's the Mount of Olives. It's the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, of course, the, the trip will conclude at the, the empty tomb. Man, folks, to say that I am, that we are so excited about that opportunity to stand there, to, to see all that, to, to be a part of it. Uh, you know, I know lots of people. I can't even number them. In, in the 30 plus years I've been in church life, knows probably well over 100 that have been to Israel. I don't know a single person that's ever come back and said, you know, it just didn't do that much for me. And I don't, I don't think I would go again. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. It seems like once you go, there's a pretty good chance you're going again. People tend to, to want to go back again and again. I, I mean, I haven't even been yet. <laughs> and I can already hear myself saying, man, you should go. Man, just to walk where Jesus walked. You know, it makes you wonder, why didn't Jesus say you ought to go? I mean, have you, have you ever thought about it? I mean, Islam requires of its adherence that you go to Mecca at least once in your lifetime if you're physically and financially able. And you are expected to get physically and financially able. Uh, Hinduism has multiple sites that pilgrimage is expected. And, And you know, it's not even an entirely religious thing. Russians in mass go to Red Square to observe Lenin's tomb. And don't we here in America, don't, probably a little bit easier on the East Coast, but all over America, Americans sooner or later try to make their way to where? D.C. Want to see those monuments. Humans like significant spots of history. We like significant places of humanity. So it's kind of interesting that not one verse, not one verse in the New Testament commands you and me, much less commands, even suggests that we go to a certain site, that we honor a certain site. Believe it or not, folks, Jesus does not command that we walk where he walked. But boy, he has a lot to say about walking like he walked, doesn't he? Would you look with me this morning in Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter nine, Third book into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Get to John or Acts, you've gone too far. Luke chapter 9, look at verses 23 to 26. Folks, this passage is absolutely central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
It is central to the Christian faith. This passage is central. It's key. It's preeminent in the invitation of Jesus on your life and on my life. Let's see what it says. Luke chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels." Boy, I can't hardly imagine that, folks, not that last verse. I can't can't imagine what it would be like to stand in the presence of Jesus, the Father, and all the angels, and them act embarrassed. But did you hear that warning? Jesus said, if you're embarrassed of me, if you're ashamed of me in this world, then there's going to be a moment where I quite possibly am going to be ashamed of you, embarrassed of you. You know, folks, this this passage, there's a lot Here, as I said, this is central to everything Christianity is about. So much here to unwrap, to understand. But today, I'm going to focus just on verse 23. Just just that first verse there that Jesus spoke. Now, Jesus started off by saying, if any of you would, would come after me. Now, you and I won't pick that up. But in that culture, in that time, that's an invitation. He's inviting them to be a disciple. He's inviting them to discipleship. Now, unfortunately, when you and I hear the word discipleship, we we tend to think of a class, right? Come Wednesday night for discipleship classes. Thursday morning, we have some discipleship classes. And I'm not saying classes are not a part of discipleship. But when we hear discipleship, we've kind of boiled it down to a class we take. Nobody listening to Jesus in that moment was thinking of taking a class. Discipleship was an entire way of life. And a a disciple is somebody who came up under somebody. Now, you and I, we only hear that word related to Jesus. But in that culture, a disciple would come up under any kind of teacher, a rabbi, a master, a philosopher. And you thought this this dude's got it. He knows what life is. He knows what life is all about. And so you would kind of dedicate yourself to living under him. You'd follow them everywhere. You'd listen to their teaching. You'd watch their way of life and hope to learn. And so Jesus is, man, he's got thousands of people. They're following him from city to city. They're waiting on him when he comes from somewhere. So he's looking at thousands of people and says, okay, you want to follow? You you, you want to come after me? You want to be a disciple of mine? Jesus, I don't know, sometimes it doesn't look like he was doing a real good job of building big crowds. Because every time he got a big crowd, he would speak words. It's almost like, let's see if we can whittle this down. He says, okay, look at all of you. Do you want to follow? You want to be a disciple? There's three things you need to do. Three things you need to do. Number one, you need to deny yourself. Number two, you need to take up your cross daily. And number three, you need to follow. Three very clear actions, three, three verbs listed there. Now, what's interesting about these three verbs is the first two verbs in the, in the Greek language are in the same verb tense. The third verb follows in a different verb tense. And the idea behind what Jesus is saying here is really there's one thing 
you need to do. You need to give your life to following me. But, but as Jesus is going to unwrap what following looks like, he's kind of like he's making it clear, you're not actually going to be following unless you do these first two things first. Unless you deny self, unless you take up your cross. Neither of which sounds that appealing, if we're being quite honest with ourselves. Man, wouldn't it be easier if following Jesus was just like uh, wearing what he wore? Might look kind of silly today, but I mean, that'd be simple. Or maybe eating the diet that Jesus ate. I don't know that the New Testament really communicates. Here's the, the diet of Jesus. Remember that John the Baptist guy? He ate what? Locust and honey. I'm all about the honey. The locust, not, not, not so sure I'd want to be a disciple of John the Baptist. By the way, John the Baptist had disciples. He, he had followers, people who followed after him. But nothing like that. But let's say we could find this. Okay, I'm going to wear what Jesus wore. I'm going to eat the things Jesus ate. What if following Jesus was a pilgrimage? What if we did go to the Holy Land at least once in our life and we maybe we took that last week of his life, boy, especially thanks to the Gospel of John, we can really detail those seven days leading up to the cross. And we could say, okay, now following Christ, I'm going to trace the steps of Jesus that last week. And wouldn't that be, a, I mean, if I do those things, I'm doing what Jesus did. That's what following's all about, right? Doing, doing what the person in front of me did. Did, did any of y'all have a chance this past Sunday to see the A-10 championship game between VCU and St. Joseph's? A lot of you. Did, do you remember? I think it was, it was in the second half. I don't remember quite where. But in the second half, the, the announcers started to talk about, the TV started to show the four-year-old. Did y'all see that? Okay, wasn't that cool? That's a cool story. Okay, y'all should have seen it. Um, no, I'll tell you about it. The four-year-old is the grandson of the St. Joseph's coach. And he is sitting three, four rows behind the St. Joseph's bench. I say sitting, he's actually out in the aisle. And he's got a little suit on, his tie's undone, you know, because that's what you do when you're coaching, you take that tie down a little bit. And, and he was mimicking his grand... I mean, lasered in, folks. He never took his eyes off his grandfather. And he did everything, not for a few minutes... For the entire game. They had to give the kid, you know, Gatorade and keep him pumped up there. For the entire game, he is doing, if his grandfather's pointing, he's pointing. If his grandfather's yelling at a player, he's yelling at the player. If he's standing there cross-armed doing every, it was hilarious. It was cute. It was inspiring. And as you watched it, you saw that little boy's adoration for his grandfather. His devotion to his grandfather. That's following, right? So if I'm, if I'm mimicking, if I'm doing the things that Jesus did, clearly people are going to say, hey, my devotion for this person called Jesus, my, my love for this person. And yet, there's something about mimicking that can fall incredibly short. That four-year-old, as awesome as that was, I, they could have just gone, left the game. Well, actually, they should have left the game. But anyway... I could have just watched him the rest of the time. But you know, that four-year-old wasn't coaching the game, was he? Matter of fact, especially at the age of four, there might even be a question if he even understands what's going on. If he understands what he's doing when he's pointing and, and yelling. I mean, he's not really doing that. Any more, folks, than I can go to the Holy Land and I can, I can trace the very steps that Jesus took. And yet, when I'm all done, 
It's very possible that the same lust and greed and anger that was in my heart before I went would still be there. I can, you can go to a, a, a famous religious site, go to the, the tomb of a famous religious leader. And guess what? We're just as selfish when we leave as when we arrived. Folks, Jesus isn't calling us to be lemmings. He's not looking for mindless followers that will, will mimic or, or imitate certain rituals or, or certain activities. He is calling for a kind of followership that is altogether radically transformational. It radically transforms our lives and our hearts so that we are never the same again. It is so radical. You can't do it. Folks, Christianity is not you doing the very best you can to be like Jesus. Christianity is not you trying to clean up your life according to the tenets of Scripture. You can't do it. So Jesus says, if this is going to happen, the first thing that's got to happen is you've got to deny yourself. Now, now when we hear deny ourselves, we think about doing without something, right? I, I, I'm I'm fasting. I'm doing without food or I'm I'm trying to live a simpler life. I'm I'm saying no to material things, trying not to be so worldly or or maybe just, you know, like every third thought I have of something I want, I'm just going to say no to myself just just to get in the exercise of self-denial. Now, folks, all of those things are denying self. All of those things can be very important. Our problem is we treat that as the goal. Fasting is the goal. No, it's not. Fasting is a tool to reach the goal. The goal is coming to the end of myself. The goal is being in touch with my weakness and my sin so that I turn from myself, deny myself, and put all of my faith and all of my confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. You thought of that? We'll take that what I just defined there. And we think of that as salvation, don't we? That place where we recognize, man, I'm a sinner. I can't clean the mess up. I can't make myself right and holy. I can't prepare myself to stand before God. But I turn from trusting in myself to do that, and I place my faith in Jesus Christ. That's self-denial. That's coming to the end of myself. A couple of months ago, I actually preached on this theme, and do you remember what I said there? We can't treat that as a one-time event. Getting saved is an event. Getting saved is a moment in time. But folks, we live every day of our lives falling on the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. We live every day of our lives not confident in my goodness, my wisdom, my strength, my spirituality, which, by the way, is what religion tries to teach you to do. How to do enough of these rituals and good things so that you can be confident of your religiosity and spirituality. Jesus says, no, you've got to come to the end of yourself. You've got to deny what you would put confidence in so that you are daily putting confidence in the Father. You know, there's another aspect of denying ourselves, and that's just what we're living for, right? God's agenda or our agenda. You know, when we say that in church, we all want to say, I'm living for God's agenda. Boy, folks, you know how hard that is? There's hardly a second of your life that is not fully, wholly, and totally driven by your agenda. Your agenda. When what ought to be happening is we don't speak a word, we don't take a step, we don't make a decision where we're not completely and wholly confident this is God's will. This is God's agenda 
right here. You know, when we use the phrase God's will, unfortunately, we tend to leave that up there for the big things, right? Who we're going to marry, what we're going to do for a living. Do we move to this new city, this new low? We, we want God's will on the big things. Well, and absolutely we should. But folks, we should want God's will on all the little things that we don't even think about every day. Don't want to move, don't want to step, don't want to speak without knowing what's God's agenda in this moment. What does he want of me in this moment? Did not Jesus perfectly display that in the Garden of Gethsemane? I can't wait to see where he might possibly knelt and prayed. God, if there's a way to save these folks without the cross, I'm really open to that option right now. But not what I want. What you want. You see, folks, we're following. Isn't that interesting? Our God does not give us a bunch of hoops to jump through. And if you get through 97% of them, you can go to heaven. Our God doesn't make up a bunch of rules to see if you can be good enough. We're following him into who he was and how he lived. He denied himself in going to the cross. When he calls us to follow, he says, this is what it looks like. Now, the second thing he says we're going to have to do is we're going to have to take up our cross daily. Now, here again, when he utters the word cross to that audience, what comes to their mind and what comes to our mind is just radically different. I mean, folks, the cross for us is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Man, we sing about it. We rejoice in it. We adorn the church with it. We adorn our homes with it. We buy jewelry. I've bought expensive jewelry for my wife. It has a cross on it. The audience Jesus was speaking to would have had no concept of anything I just said. For, for them, a cross was a place of humiliation and execution. Now, I want you to notice something very careful because I, I don't think we really understand what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus did not say be executed on a cross. That's not what he says here. He doesn't say, go out to that cross and put yourself on it. He doesn't say that, does he? You see, folks, when Jesus said, pick up your cross, that audience would have understood things historically that you and I maybe don't get in touch with. They would have understood that the cross is kind of a two-stage thing. You see, what, what is happening when you think of a cross, they would have thought of one thing, a criminal. And a criminal is somebody who has rebelled against the authority of the state. And apparently, obviously, they've been caught and they've been drugged into court and the court has found them guilty of rebelling against the state. And then from that spot right there where they were found guilty and where they were condemned, they were to carry their cross out to the side of execution. Now, we tend to skip right over the carrying of the cross or maybe we think of Jesus in the Via Della Rosa, right? Walking down that. But that's not really our focus. Our focus is let's get out to Golgotha and what happens out there. But see, in their mind, when Jesus said carry, that had nothing to do with Golgotha. Because when a criminal carried that cross through town, it was a sign to the, to the city, to the community, I have come under submission to the state. I have come in submission to the authority of the state. Albeit, I'm being forced to say that. I'm being forced to do that. But carrying the cross was not the same as being executed on the cross. Carrying it was giving the message. I live under the authority now of the state. 
Folks, when Jesus says, pick up your cross, he's not talking about you dying. He's not talking about you suffering. He is talking about you coming under the authority of God. Now, unlike the criminal, we haven't been caught. This isn't you're a bad person and God's finally caught you and now you're going to be punished. And for the rest of your life, you can drag this cross around. You know, some folks do that. And folks, honestly, that's where mimicking really doesn't add up at all to what Jesus is talking about. It, that, that's, that's not what's happening there. It's, it's not about physically carrying something. It is about physically, spiritually, emotionally, and spiritually coming under the authority of the state. In this case, the Lord God. And it's not that the, the community sees a wooden structure on my back and I carry it through Colonial Heights and Chesterfield every day. No, what they see is that in how I talk, I have clearly come under the rule of the Father. In the way I look at human sexuality, the way I look at marriage, the way I look at finances, the way I look at enemies, the way I look at friends, clearly they can see I live under the rule of the state of heaven. And they see that submission. Now, while I said Jesus wasn't calling us to suffering, well, yeah, he was. Because when you and I come under the rule of God, it will bring suffering into our lives. You see, the, the state, our state, our world, will not applaud you for living under the authority of God. As a matter of fact, it's really quite the opposite of that. They'll make fun of you. Uh, they'll bother you. In some places, and sometimes, they'll kill you. Jesus came under the authority of the Father. And they killed him for that. Remember, we're followers and really, while I'm not focusing on it today, that's really what verse 24, 25 and 26 are getting into. As you follow in this world that is living in rebellion to my father's authority, you will not be applauded for doing that. And so as you follow, you follow with the full knowledge that following me may result in suffering. Following me may cause, call you to endure Beyond what you ever felt like you had the ability to endure. Now, somebody might say, well, why would why would I do that? I want to follow somebody that makes my life better. I want to follow somebody that makes me rich and and happy and healthy. Why would I want to? Because he loves you. You know, we say that in church a lot. We're very used to hearing it. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. But folks, Jesus loves you like nobody else on this planet ever has or ever will. And you know what, folks, I feel pretty loved. I, I mean, I really I feel like, man, there's some people in my life that God has put around me and they love me and they they love me well. And I'm I'm needy of that love and I'm grateful for that love. But they do not cannot love me like Jesus does, nor can I love them like Jesus loves them. My, my love fails. My love is negligent. My love doesn't even always do the right thing. I might have been thinking that this would be the right, but it wasn't the right. Th that None of that is ever true. Jesus' love never fails. Jesus' love always does the exact right thing. Jesus' love is perfect. And it is only Jesus' love that will result in me standing before God in right standing. With the opportunity to have all sins forgiven and to have eternal life in heaven in front of me. But you know, folks, I, I just kind of described there that following Jesus, why would we do that? Well, look, he loves you and look at all that he can do for you. Folks, if he doesn't do anything for you. He is worthy of you following him because of who he is. He is the son of God, your creator. 
So you see, folks, following Jesus, it's, it's not as much about putting my foot right where he put his foot. It's about putting my heart where he put his heart. It's, it's about living in the way and the reason that he lived. Following Jesus is not a trip. It's not an event. It's not a ritual or a moment. Following Jesus is, is an all-consuming, an all-driving way of life. Following Jesus isn't just something for Sunday. It drives everything we are, everything we do, all day long. I'd love to say, see if this week you can think about what would following Jesus look like in this moment. See if you can do that five times. And you would fall so grossly short of the eye. Folks, the goal is not to see if I can follow Christ five times this week. The goal is to see if I can think about what following looks like five times every hour of every day that I'm alive on this planet. We should never have it. We shouldn't have another thought that drives us more. Where's Jesus going in this conversation? Where's Jesus going in this hurt, in this joy, in this decision, in this success, in this failure? Where's Jesus going in that so that I can get behind him and follow him and who he is and what he's doing in this moment? Jesus had one request on your life. Follow me. What's your answer? How was it displayed in just the last seven days? How will it be displayed tomorrow? Let's pray. Father, I I can confess a sin to you that I believe I can confess on behalf of many in here. We will very quickly call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. And then we will live huge chunks of time without even once thinking about following you. We said that, yes, we will follow, and then nowhere are we actually thinking and looking at what following looks like. Lord, help us to realize following you isn't something we bump into on accident. Following you isn't something we do on a Sunday morning or in this ritual or in in this place. Following you is to consume our lives. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Lord, as I think about, as we think about that, what that might look like and what that might mean in the, in the rest of this day and this week ahead, I am so grateful for your patience. I'm so grateful for your grace and your mercy. But while I'm grateful, Father, may I not abuse it. I, I want to be grateful for your grace and mercy. I don't want to abuse your grace and mercy. I pray for myself, for every one of us, that there would be a new and a fresh awareness in our lives where we begin to think a whole lot more about actually following you into the moment in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.